Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. CBC, I'm happy to be with you this morning. I'll be reading today's passage from the NASB. Today's passage is Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Just go to Philippians, make a right. Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Welcome to CBC this morning, everybody. If we haven't met, I'm Charlie. I am the senior pastor here. And like we do each and every week, we're going to take a second before we get into God's word and ask God to reveal what he's doing in our lives through his word. And we do this because we live in an increasingly critical culture. And it's important for us to come here this morning, realize and recognize that God is good, that God meets us here, and that he works through his word. Realize and recognize that you're not here by accident, you're not watching by accident, but God has a purpose for you this morning in his scripture. And so we're just going to pray that we put aside criticalness and the Holy Spirit um, shows us more of God this morning and shows you individually more of God this morning. It's a good practice to practice each and every week. So I'm going to lead us and I'm going to ask a couple times that you stop and just say a quiet prayer to yourself that God might teach you and that God might use my words this morning. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful that kids are back in the building away from their parents like you designed. I'm thankful that we can worship together. I pray this morning as we open the scriptures that you teach us and you guide us, Holy Spirit, that you speak to us through the living word of God. If you're comfortable, take a couple seconds right now and just ask the Holy Spirit to lead you, guide you, and teach you this morning. I'd ask you to take a couple seconds and just pray for me that God might use the work put in this week and my words to show all of us a clearer, bigger picture of his character. Pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. We're in Colossians, everybody. We're in the third chapter. We got verses to knock out this morning, 9 through 11. And let me tell you something. Uh, Being a pastor, you get some really weird and great questions at the same time. Just this morning, somebody came up to me and said, I was reading my Bible, my wife was, and I had this question that I couldn't quite reconcile. God seemingly said this thing over here, and and then he said this thing over here, can you help explain it to me? I love those questions. When people come to you with a question and seemingly they want to know a perspective or answer, but sometimes, sometimes, and all the other churches, not this one, sometimes people come to you with a question and they know the answer they want you to give in advance. You've been there before? 
for? When people come to you and say, I have a question for you, and what they really mean is, I have a statement I want you to read to me so that I can be in agreement with you and choose Crossroads as our church. In the last three or four months, I've met with numerous people online, and one of the biggest questions I get is, are you guys Reformed or not? Are you Calvinist or Arminianist? And if you don't know what that is, it's just kind of how God interacts with the interdependence of man. Both are fine biblical positions, and we have both in this church right now. But when I get asked those questions, it's not necessarily, man, tell me because I want to know. It's tell me because if you don't know what I know, I'm going to go. You know, have you been there before? It's those situations. And today we're in some text that talks about the unity of the body of Christ. There's this one author, I love the book that he wrote. His name is Ryan Putman, and he wrote a book called When Doctrine Divides the People of God an evangelical approach to theological diversity. He tells a story in the book. He's also a college professor at a seminary. And he tells a story about talking with a few kids and giving them options of books to choose from and read. And one of them, quote, said this, I had a student some years ago whom I gave several options for a textbook, and he made the comment, I'm going to pick this book because I'm going to agree with it the most. Welcome to the individualism of America. And there's goods and bads with that. But here's the problem. And sometimes we get in these places where we're so divided, it blinds us against the things that unites us truly. One story that stuck with me personally as a pastor, there's a pastor that passed away a few years ago. His name's Eugene Peterson. You've probably heard of him. He's a sweetheart of a man. His writings are phenomenal. He cares for people like I want to care for people one day. And towards the end of his life, he got asked a question and he gave an answer that a group of evangelicals didn't like. And this man's been a pastor for 50 years. And overnight, half of the people that call themselves evangelicals turned on him. They wanted to pull his books off bookshelves and they said, this guy's a heretic and we can't trust him anymore over one comment. My point is sometimes as Christians, we eat ourselves, we eat each other. We turn and we divide. But there's this Bible verse that I keep coming back to that I came back to this week in John 13. Jesus says this, by this, everyone will know that you're disciples. Here's what it is. If you love one another. The one indicator that people looking on from outside your community will be able to distinguish whether or not you're a follower of me is how well not you love other people that don't know Jesus. We should do that. But how well you love people that say they do know Jesus. Somebody told me growing up that if you ever want to know how a man's going to treat his wife, look at how that man treats his mother kind of sort of thing, you know? And it's the idea that Jesus sets the standard that people will know that we're followers of Jesus, not by how well we take care of the poor and the sick, that is true and important, but by how well we love one another in the body. Here's the problem. I think we're known for what divides us and not what unites us. Thomas Rayner is a church guru who's CEO of Lifeway Books for a while and now has started his own kind of church consulting gig where he talks about what the church is and what it's supposed to be. He spent decades studying non-Christians. And a few years ago, he wrote an article and said, these are the seven trends that I see and I'm gonna rank them in order of how often I see them most frequently. Number one, he said, the number one position of non-Christians towards Christians is they say, I quote, Christians are against more things than they are for. One person he interviewed said, it just seems to me, Christians are mad at the world and mad at each other. They're so negative, they seem unhappy. I have no desire to be like them and stay upset all of the time. 
I wonder how people see us. I wonder how people see our unity. I wonder if they see our disunity and division. I wonder if we're a group of people that ask questions only to try and find the answer that we already have in our back pocket, you know? Because that seemingly goes against what Christ teaches. In our text today, Paul is talking to a group of divided people. Colossae, if you remember, was a trade city that was dying. And in, in a couple hundred years, Colossae won't even be a city anymore. And he writes to this trade city with all of these different people. And he starts telling them, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what your faith family looks like. And he says, if you look at verse 9 with me, he says, do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his practices. He's picking up from verse 8 when he says, basically, you have these things that are going to divide your new faith family. Don't do that. And so he says, don't lie to one another you've put off the old man. And just before we get to the lie part, let's look at the put off part. He's talking about kind of how you clothe yourself. We're going to get more into that next week. But basically, he, he refers to who we are in Jesus as putting on new clothes. And he does that for a reason. Because in the first century world, clothes dignified or undignified. In the first century world, I could look at you and tell how much money you had and where you came from. Before COVID, I could do that here, but now everybody's goal is pants by 10 a.m., you know, when you're working from home. In the first century world, you could tell by the fabrics that people wore and what they wore, and if they had changes of clothes, what societal class they fell in. It wasn't just about clothes. It was about identity. So Paul's using the example of clothing that represented identity to say, you have a new identity in Jesus. That's what he's building in the first few chapters in Colossians itself. And so he says... You've put off the old man with his practices. I love that phrase, old self there. Old man, old self, depending on your translation. And, and we've spent time talking and unpacking what that means. But I think there's something really, really important in that text. We see that phrase two other times in the New Testament. And one thing that I think we get wrong, that, that sometimes I get wrong, is we think there's this battle inside of us of the old man and the new, the new man. It's that, it's that example, if you've heard it before, where the Native American man is talking to his son. He said, I have two wolves that are battling for my affections. I have one wolf that wants good things and one wolf that wants bad things. Which one can I choose? And the old Native American says, whatever one you feed will win, you know? And so we translate that to the Christian life and we say, I have this old nature and this new nature that's being made new in Jesus and they're battling for one another. Here's the point is that's not what Paul is saying here. Never when he uses this phraseology in the New Testament does he talk about conflicting natures because when Jesus made you new, he kicked the old one out and the new one lives there now. When Jesus made you new, it wasn't this war between the two nature. He says, you are completely new all the time. Live into that newness. And that might seem like a small thing, but really it has big consequences because the old man and the new man never coexist. And it's important. One author I like said it like this. The believer will sin, but that is not attributed to the old self. Sin happens because of the imperfect process of growth in the new self sanctification. Let me just break it down and explain it the best I can. I think if we have this idea that the old self and the new self are at war, then we feel like we have to do more to be better. So I've been married for six years. I think one of the shocking things about marriage for me is the fact that I wake up into a reality every day that my wife is my wife. I am a three on the Enneagram. I'm a striver for things. I like to prove myself constantly. I like to be the best of all the things I'm not, but I like to think that I am good at things. And one of the beautiful things about marriage 
has been that I get to wake up every day, whether yesterday was bad or good or terrible or even worse than terrible, and I know that tomorrow I'm still, I don't have to earn my wife's trust, affections, marriage-ness every single day. Instead, I wake up and say, no, that reality currently exists now. Even if I acted single yesterday, which some days I have those days, when it's all about me and what I want to do and where I want to go, I get to wake up tomorrow and know fully that I'm still married to my wife and nothing's going to change that, God willing. Here's the deal. If we see our relationship in Christ as a war between the two, then we think that we have to do more so that this one will win out. And what the Bible says is it already has because of Jesus. It's that quote that we use often when we say, be now who you are. Richard Hayes says it in his book about the New Testament, that we are living into the current reality of victory that Christ gave us when he died on our behalf. And it builds up to this point. It builds this grand idea that Paul is saying to the Colossi people, that Paul is saying to us is when you look at yourself in the mirror, when you see yourself, the lens through which you see yourself is Christ. You look at yourself through Christ as a believer, follower in Christ. No matter how bad your morning was or how bad your afternoon will be, when you look at yourself, you see the beauty of Christ. And that grace motivates us to live into that beauty. It's the difference between a gospel of shame that says, do more, be more, because you are not good enough, and a gospel that says, you're not good enough, God is. Live into this, because he's still going to love you tomorrow. Big difference with little words. And so Paul is saying Christ is now the lens through which you look at yourself. And so he says, put off all the old stuff. They do not coexist anymore because you're being made new. And because of that, he says at the beginning of this verse, don't lie. A couple of words before then, he talked about some other things. Don't be malicious or angry. Don't use abusive language and don't slander. All of these have to do with how we communicate with one another in the family of Jesus. And he ends it by saying, and don't lie there. And in the original language, that word lie kind of has more weight than all the other words there. He's building up to this point of don't lie to one another because he's talking about divisions within the body and he's making the case that if you don't want to divide, ultimately the one thing you can do to stop division is stop lying to one another. Because here's what lying does. Lying twists the reality that we're living together and lying absolutely puts my good above the greatest good of the community. And so we know that fundamentally lies twist reality. We see it all throughout the Old and New Testament. The first lie we see is right along with the first sin that we see in Genesis 3, if you know the biblical story. Serpent, Adam, Eve, apple, all the good things in the garden. And then Eve says, I can't touch this. And that's not true. And the serpent says, well, you're not going to die. And there's lies all the way along. It twists the reality that's kind of ingrained in somewhat of the truth, which is what makes it dangerous. Overt lies with no reality and truth aren't dangerous because they're fables, you know? Lies that are rooted in some semblance of truth are dangerous because we don't see them. So Paul's saying in this example, don't lie because it twists the reality of the truth that you're living together and intrinsically lying puts your good over the greatest good. It puts your good over the good of everybody else. And this is something we miss as Western individualists in America is that corporate good was the good in the first century world. So he's about to go through all these lists of identifiable features saying that we now are a new faith family. But before he does that, he says, don't lie because when you lie, you change how you see yourself and you change how others see themselves and you, see how, you change how others see you. Lying will change how people relate to you and how people see themselves. 
So if you're anything like me, what you're thinking is, okay, so I can't lie at all, and I think we've got to see a little forest through the trees here. So let me just put a hypothetical out there, all right? Let's say you go home this afternoon, and your wife, whom you love, I'm going to say it from my perspective, uh, looks at you and says, hey, do I look, let's just say fat. I don't know, let's not, like that's never been asked before, right? Honey, do I look fat? And you're thinking to yourself, well, the COVID-19 has been the COVID-19, if you know what I'm talking about. And maybe, and you think, well, Paul said not to lie, so I have to say, yes, you look fat. You know the answer to that question? Always no. Always no, right? Because what Paul says here is see the forest through the trees. And what he's saying is don't lie to yourselves about your identity in Christ because he's going to kick through this list of people uh, that we maybe like or maybe don't like based on where they're from or what kind of church they grew up in. And he's going to say, you guys are all equal in Jesus because I'm making a new faith family. Don't be legalists. Let's look at the context behind this passage. He's saying don't let your lying enable disable your ability to see the value of others through the lens of Jesus. And so he goes on in the next verse. And he says, this is what you're not supposed to do. You've been created, or you've been clothed, excuse me, with a new man that is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. He's making this case that you're new. You have a new purpose and you have a new identity and you have a new family because here's the truth about lying in community. Relationships based on lies break down. They break down every time. And I know this because I spent time this week Googling the Bachelor statistics. All right, everybody? I did. It was terrible. I've never watched this show. But here's what I know to be true is that if you put a ridiculously hot person with another ridiculously hot person in the middle of a beautiful setting, love will happen, I promise. It's, I read a couple different articles on it, but essentially it's somewhere between 4% and 11% is the success rate of long-lasting relationships from this TV show. Do you know why? Because everything they're building their lives on together in that moment are lies. Lies. Because you're going to put on the COVID-19 and you're going to go home to your family's farm in Iowa and it's not going to be, you know, Maui. <laughs> you're like, this is not what I thought. Relationships built on lies break down. And Paul's saying be better. Not because you have this old man in you that's grasping at your ankles to take you down one day if you don't, because you are new because of Jesus. Live into that. So then he gets into a list of people. I love what Doug Moo says. He's a commentator. He said, those who belong to Christ constitute a new humanity within which the distinctions of this world, while not obliterated, are revitalized. And so then he gets into all these different distinctions in this world. He says, here, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So he gives them a list of groups. Because like I said, Colossae was a trade city. So there's this hodgepodge of people. So what I kind of want to do is very quickly walk through some of these different groups. And here's where I want to do it. Because it's easy to read this and be like, yeah, man, I love Greeks. They're fantastic. I have a best friend that's a Jew. I don't do any of these things. But what we want to do is look past the words here and see the purpose and point of what he was talking to, the different ways that they brought division within their communities because they had a different view and value of people, not based on their identity in Jesus, but of something else. And so he goes down this list and says, do not divide over these things because here there is neither. In the new family of Jesus, there is neither. And so we're going to kick through this list of five or so, and maybe some resonate with you. Maybe they don't. I'm sure one or two will, because if you're honest with each other, I think this battle to divide, this battle to place me above the we, which is what's happening here, is something we struggle with all the time. It makes us feel better. It makes me feel like I'm not as bad as maybe I want to admit. 
And so what Paul does is he starts breaking down some of the divisions. And the first one is Greek or Jew. That one's pretty popular throughout the New Testament. He's literally talking about ethnic pride that divides us. And I don't think I have to go into this much. This is a room full of Texans, okay? And if, if you don't think we have ethnic pride as Texans, one, either you have not lived here very long, we're not born here, or you're lying to yourself. I, I grew up here all my life, a couple miles that way, actually. And I thought Texans were like everybody else. I thought everybody took this much pride in their state. I thought everybody thought their state was the best until I left here and I moved to Chicago. And I got there and I'm at uh, my new school and I started talking about my upbringing and I think I said something like, you know, in my year of Texas history, and they said, stop it. And I said, what? And they said, you took a year of state history? I said, of course, didn't you? And he said, I'm from Illinois. It would last about two hours and what would we do for the next 32 weeks, you know? I said, that's a good point. And then my friend from Chicago came down here and he started noticing things I took for granted, right? One time we were driving under a bridge And he noticed that all the bricks on that bridge had the Texas symbol stamped on each and every one of the bricks. And he's like, how much do you think about yourselves as Texans? I was like, well, we're the best, you know? And we know that to be true. And so when I talk about ethnic pride to bring it back to reality, I think that we sometimes, whether it's Texan or American or or people from all over the world, we might think that we have a corner on the market of what it means to follow Jesus because of where we're from, of the church we grew up in, of the state that we're born into, because that's God's blessing and favor on us. Paul says, don't do that. And he goes on and he says, circumcised or uncircumcised, this is all about religious heritage. I don't know if you grew up in the church or not. I don't know if you were a youth group all-star or not, but I know that I wasn't one. And I grew up going to church, but not going to church, if you know what that meant. We went, we showed up, we got there late, we left early, we checked the box, God is good. And he was. My parents loved the Lord, and I'm thankful for that. But I went to Bible college, and I experienced a whole new kind of Christian. The ones that said the word brother after every other phrase, and they tried to hug me way more than I was comfortable with, you know? And that's okay. But really quickly, early on, I was in Chicago, and I remember within the first three weeks, this happened at least twice, if not three times. I went to a coffee shop, met some new people, and they said, you know, what you know, denomination did you grow up in? It's a Bible college. That's a decent question. I said, I'm Methodist. And they said, well, I hope you get saved. <laughs> I said, what? Just because I didn't know any different. I, I figured I'm Methodist, but it's Texas, so it's all Baptist and it washed out. And so I, I figured, like, I didn't know what that meant. And so that started me down this path of really not liking <laughs> the people that judged me for the Methodism that I was raised in at this really conservative Bible college. And then I was a senior. And I remember I'd built up these walls inside of me to really not like the youth group all-stars. So one of my, uh, somebody on staff last week went to Tulsa for a youth group reunion, like 30 or 40 years. And I said, I'm sorry, what now? She said, I'm going for a youth group reunion. And inside of me welled up judgment because I'd learned that we judge religious heritage, whether we have it or whether we don't. I was a senior at Moody. And I was talking to this kid who grew up as a youth group all-star. And I was talking about how I didn't like the people that held it against me that I didn't. And he said, you know, you do the same thing just in reverse, right? And I said, I don't like you very much. Walk away, sir. You know? The idea that it's blinding sometimes and we don't see the baggage we come in that divides us from being the united community of God because of how we're born and raised and shamed and not shamed. Paul says, don't do that. He goes on and he says, barbarian and Scythian. Sounds like something out of Harry Potter, barbarian and Scythian. 
And that isn't a, um, that is, those aren't opposing words. Those are complementary. It's adverbial. It takes it one step farther. Barbarian, simply in that context, meant you weren't one of us. They got their name from not being able to speak Greek. And when they did, it sounded like they were saying barbarian. So it's a nickname that they had for this group of people that didn't speak Greek in the first century world that were the very opposite of us in so many ways. And what Paul's referencing here is literally the nature of, of, of the complete opposite of who you are, what you were raised with, and how you grew up. He's saying your culture is going to be completely different than the one that I'm used to. These guys were doing church together. Scythians actually were a worse example of barbarians. He takes it a step farther. They were known for being savages. One first century historian named Josephus said this about Scythians. They delight in murdering people and are a little better than wild beasts. Think about that. Paul's saying, hey, guys, here, there's no distinction between the worst of the worst that you see and you. Think about what he's calling us into there. Goes back to that phrase that I love. I think George W. Bush quoted it when he did the funeral of the Dallas cops four or five years ago. He said that we want to believe the best intentions of ourselves and we want to believe that the enemy is the worst example of who they are, you know? But Paul's saying in this text, think about the worst example of people that you can see. And in Christ, if you're in Christ together, you are on equal playing fields. I've never seen a time that we need to hear that more than right now when your religious and political affiliation defines your value so much. I see it. I see it all the time. I've, I've literally known people that have come and left this church because they didn't feel comfortable being a Democrat or felt comfortable being a Republican. That is terrible because it says that we're not defined or identified by our political prowess that so often is juxtaposed right now in our culture. We're defined by that which unites us. And so take the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. And if you're in Christ together, you have the same value. You are united because what unites you is bigger than what divides you. We need to remember that as Christians. And then he goes on, and he said, slave or free, and this is just an economic division. He's saying that whether you have a lot of money and a lot of clothes or not a lot of money and not a lot of clothes, it doesn't mean that God chose you more than the other. This is a knock against health and wealthers right now in the church here. So God hasn't been more faithful to you if you have more money in your bank account. You're not any better than, you don't know Jesus any more than if God blessed you with a great new job or if you just lost your job. He said those divisions don't make up value in the family of Jesus. He's saying don't let your social class determine what you bring to the table of Christ because you're gonna put those things away and don't lie to each other about how you relate to one another. So Paul does all this simply to say that you guys divide over things that you shouldn't divide over because they're not the best good. I love what Joseph Hellerman wrote in his book, When the Church Was a Family. He said, the idea of salvation cannot be reduced to a personal relationship with Jesus. God's plan is much more encompassing. God intends for salvation to be a community-creating event. And that's why he goes on in the text to talk through what it means to be a new person. And so he's saying, this is what you're going to be. There's not going to be any division in these things. And here's the deal. That is incredibly difficult when you think about it. You have to fight all this welled up judgment that comes all the time in waves, whether it's because of the way people dress or how they speak or where they come from or whether they were Baptist, Methodist, atheist, Islamic. You have to fight that and say, under Christ, we are united more than we're divided. And then he gives us the how. 
He says, but Christ is in all, Christ is all and in all. That's a phenomenal statement. Because when he says this in the text, when he says this in the text, he's making this radical statement that now there is no division in a community-driven construct where you were defined by your division. That's the first century world. You were defined by your grouping of people and the we was always better than the me. You married who your parents told you to because it was better for your family and that was your privilege, honor, and joy. We don't see it like that anymore. And so Paul comes in and says, those divisions that defined you for your entire life are no longer what defines you anymore. He says, Christ is all and in all. It's not a pantheistic rendition of who God is. God is not in the trees. Christ is not in the chair. Christ isn't indwelling each and every one of us. He's at the right hand of the Father. That's the Spirit's work. What he means when he says, Christ is all and in all, is not only is Christ the lens through which you see yourself. Christ is now the lens through which we see others. So the first thing you see when you see somebody else in the faith family, isn't the car they're driving, isn't their political leanings, isn't their denominational background, isn't how they say things, it's Jesus. And if the first thought we have when we look at other followers of Jesus and it's not, he is made in Christ's image, he is, being, he is new in Christ and he's living through that, in that, living out that, then we are not seeing as Paul says to see. It's a challenge of epic proportions because it changes the way that we see other people and in a more divided landscape that we live in now, I think I need to be reminded of that. Because the way that we see people changes how we treat people, often. I told the story about how my daughter is now a biter last week and I mentioned that about six months ago, walked into the daycare and they said, hey, we gotta tell you something. I said, what? They said, your child got bit this morning. And I said, tell me which rebel did this, who's probably gonna end up in prison. And last week I went to pick her up and she said, you gotta sign a form. I said, why? She said, your child bit this other child. And I said, what did he do to deserve that, right? Because <laughs> I'm looking at my daughter through the lens of my daughter. It changes how I first see and interpret their actions. What Paul is saying is look at other Christians through the lens of Christ, no matter what they post. And that's gonna change how you react to what they post, how you interact with them, how you treat them. He's saying, because in Christ, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. He's saying, unity is our best good. I was talking to Delin this week, our women's director, and she told me a story that was amazing. <laughs> she said she had a good friend, and they were married for 20 years. And the husband had an affair, and the marriage ended and stopped. And he said, but what was really fascinating was the father-in-law of the woman who was cheated on kept loving the son-in-law like he was still his son. Think about that. When we think about, especially marriages and divorces, I've seen a couple, I'm at the age now where I've had friends get divorced, and one thing I know is that they're always messy, and they're emotional, and they're hard. And usually, whenever I've seen divorce happens, you retreat to the corner that you came into this relationship with, right? So sure, we made a vow, and we made a, a promise to be family, and to fight like family, and to love like family, and to live like family, but if divorce is on the table, we naturally regress back to what we were, the families we were before we said our vows, our oaths, our promises. And this one man didn't do that. He said, I'm going to keep loving, I'm going to keep loving my son-in-law like he was still my son-in-law. That's the lens that Jesus, that Paul is asking us to live through and live with. He's saying, see them differently because of Christ regardless of, fill in your blank there, 
And just as a side note, that doesn't get rid of differences. We are not a church that believes that we should downplay differences. Differences show us the creative moxie of God. Differences should be celebrated, but differences don't define us. You are not an American first. You are not a white guy first, a black guy first, an Asian person first. You are not a parent, or you are not what your job is. You are in Christ first as followers of Christ. And might that unite you? Because here's what happens. When we are united and people see all the things that are different about us, where we come from and how much money we make and what we believe about politics and sometimes what we believe about God himself, when we see those things that unite us and then people see all the differences and we still love well, do you know what they see? The beauty of God. The beauty of God. Because if we're a church that's only unified in what we agree with and our God is only as big as the things that we agree with. And Paul is saying all those things that make you different if you're united in those through Jesus Christ, they point to a God who's worthy of worship. Christ is the lens through which you see yourself and through which you see others all the time. It's a call to be this new family and new humanity. And that takes work on our end. I mean, how it looks for me this week, I love St. Ignatius wrote, I think a really great response to difference. And I'm gonna read a little bit of it. He talks about our disposition towards others. He says, that both the giver and the maker of the spiritual exercises may be of greater help and benefit to each other. It should be presupposed that every good Christian ought to be more eager to put a good, inter a good interpretation on a neighbor's statement than to condemn it. Further, if one cannot interpret it favorably, one should ask how the other means it. If that meaning is wrong, one should correct the person with love. And if it's not enough, one should search out every appropriate means through which, by understanding the statement in a good way, it may be saved. What he's asking is, how do we see others? And how does that change how we treat others? How we talk to others? How we love others? Because Jesus said the statement, people will know that you're mine by how you love one another. How do we love one another? Are we a unifying body? Or are we a divided body? That couple that um, had the issue with the affair and the split, the end of that story, Dylan said, which is really cool, is that they got back together largely in part because how the woman's father loved the son-in-law over time. And here's the deal. I think, I really do believe that if we're a church, if we're a church that loves well, that loves each other well through our differences, people will see the beauty of Christ and react to that. Because Paul's calling us to be a new person. He's saying you got rid of the old and you are new and what unites you in Jesus is bigger and better than what could ever divide you outside of Jesus. And so remember those things. And may we be a place and a people as we see others in the family of Jesus through the lens of Christ that shows people the beauty of Christ in our world. Because man, let me tell you something. That's what we need a little bit of right here and right now. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for the family of God. I'm thankful for our differences. I'm thankful for who you've called into your family and the ability that we have to love one another well. I'm thankful that I not only see myself, but see others in the family of God through the lens of Christ. Help us do that more. Help us be gracious in how we respond. Help us be loving in how we interact. Help us to love well so that people might see the bigness and beauty of God. Because we need it. And may we be a church that's known for what Jesus said. 
how well we loved one another. I pray these things in his name. Amen.